Oi, oi, this is Raw, the 90s rave podcast with your resident host, Tom Latcham. And do we have a treat for you and me today? Our guest is one of the most highly regarded rave MCs in history. A man who, despite no longer living in the UK and barely performing here, is still a huge crowd favourite and is at ease emceeing on both Happy Hardcore and Jungle. He's so good, they named him twice. He is, of course, MCMC. And he joins us now on Zoom from his home in LA. Hello, Maurice. How are you? Hey, I'm great, mate. How are you, Tom? Uh, yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Cheers for joining us. So, we just said, you are one of the most uh, much-loved MCs, despite the fact that you, you've barely performed in the UK for, for 20 years, and uh, you live in LA, which, by my reckoning, must be around about 10 o'clock now in the morn? Yeah, that's right. Five <laughs> minutes to ten. Yes. Yeah, it's morning time. Yeah. And it's MCMC about to kick up a storm. <laughs> <laughs> so your life now, which we are, we're, we're, you know, we're, you're going to discuss later on. Um, it's a million miles away from your old life, really, isn't it? What was what was life like uh, for MCMC during his 1990s rave heyday? Well, I mean... What a journey, you know. You look back now and you kind of realize um, what you were going through and, you know, what I was kind of uh, living at that time. Uh, but at the time, it felt good and, it, um, and I was enjoying myself a lot. But I don't think I really realized uh, what was going on. It was kind of just doing what I needed to do in order to satisfy my uh, artistic goals and um, being out there and, 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 and doing it, you know, it felt great, you know, um, but looking back, it means so much more. And I look back at the time more than I was when I was in the moment and in the nineties really enjoying it, you know? So it was, um, I mean, it was great. It, it was absolutely great. I was fulfilling uh, my dreams and goals um, as as an artist, um, and it was it was just fantastic. I mean, no complaints. What What do you think it was that made it such an exciting and momentous decade for both artists like yourself, but also for um, the ravers who still hang on to those days with such uh, wonderful nostalgic memories? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I started off as a raver. So um, from a raving standpoint, I think it was just exciting, um, especially in the 90s when, you know, big raves, you didn't know where you were going, Right. There was all this anticipation building up. We're going to go out. We don't know where we're going. There's a car full of us and we're going to end up in the countryside, a part of the country we've never been in the dark. Uh, we, you know, you've got to make your way to a telephone box, meeting up with people from all over the country that have gathered at this meeting point and then, you know, parking up on the side of the road where we had no business parking and walking across fields following the music. Um, I think it was really um, discovering something really new that had never happened. Um, you know, uh, for, for my generation, we, we heard about, um, you know, early days of Glastonbury and uh, Woodstock. And I think it kind of was starting to 
create that for us. And it was just excitement and just not being um, monitored by the authorities as such. Like you'd go somewhere and it was just like, you know, you didn't know what to expect. Um, so I think from a rave standpoint, the 90s were very exciting and, and a time of discovery of music. Um, I think for artists, it was also um, a time of transition for a lot of artists, having come from various backgrounds and musical influences, um, just finding a music that was encompassing the energy of that time, the youth of that time, but also bringing in those musical influences that artists have grown up with. And how much do you miss now the buzz of holding thousands and thousands of ravers in the palm of your hand in this exciting new world and, and receiving all of their adulation? Um, well, to be honest with you, I don't really miss it. I don't really miss it. Um, I am very happy and also proud of myself that I lived it and I stepped out. I kind of, uh, I, I left when I felt was a good time to leave, right? I didn't want to fade into the background and I started to feel that was happening a bit with some of the changes. It was becoming more and more challenging for me personally. Um, and I mean, I lived it, you know, I lived those dreams. I performed on the biggest stages. I traveled the world. So I don't really miss it. Um, I embrace the future and just, I'm in a different part of my, of my life and wanted to basically grow, grow out of that and have that be a period of my life that I could look back on fondly. And I'm doing this, I do the same with the rest of my life. So uh, I, look, I really enjoy where I'm at now. And um, I'm also looking forward to, to the future. We'll probably talk a little bit about it later, but I'm interested. You, you, I've, read, I've heard another interview with you where you said you had an exit strategy from the scene and you enacted it. Um, and I wonder whether your departure from the scene has led you to maintain your popularity in a way and, 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 and in a slightly different way. And we'll come on to Stevie Hyperdy a bit later, but Stevie passed away. And so when people pass away, they become lionized in their death because you can't see them anymore and, and you can't hear them perform anymore. And, and, and although you haven't passed away yourself, you, you don't perform that much. So I wonder if there's a sort of a similarity there in how you're viewed by ravers. It feels like it to me, but I don't know what you think. Um, I think so. I don't know, but um, I feel kind of the same as you. It seems that um, as I look back or I get comments uh, on Facebook or people reaching out to me. Um, it, it then seems that, yeah, I made the right choice to kind of step out and, and people, I think, you know, it's always better to miss someone than they're always there in your face and then dying, fading into the background, which was really what I didn't want to do. I didn't want my legacy in the scene to be somebody that was struggling um, to keep on. That's why I really did, you know, want to have an exit strategy from the scene. Well, you're listening to a Raw the 90s Ray podcast with me, Tom Latcham and MCMC. Uh, we've 
just got a bit of his view on the 90s rave scene and his legacy. We're going to explore more of that later on. But uh, Maurice, uh, I shouldn't have said that because I've just I've just preempted our next slot. Uh, we're going to do a oh, get to know you segment <laughs> where we it's find absolutely out. Absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. <laughs> uh, where we uh, we find out a little bit more about our guests. Um, so let's do a little quick fire round for you. Find out a little bit about you as a person. Um, quickly, full name. Uh, Maurice Joseph Alain Capillaire. So it's a long name. Now, the funny thing about it is my first name is actually Joseph. Um, Doesn't but, quite work, though, does it, with the old MCGC? Nah. <laughs> yeah, right. So, <laughs> so um, you know, my dad's name was Luis Maurice, but everybody called him Maurice. And I am the youngest and I was named after him. Um, so everyone in the house called me Little Maurice. Um, so I grew up, you know, um, most of my, yeah, pretty much all my life until I was about 13, 14, thinking that my first name was, Mor- you know, Maurice, Morris, right? I kind of, I've, I've kind of changed it. It's, it's Maurice, M-A-U-R-I-C-E, right? But in England, you know, Maurice kind of had the connotation of, you know, oh, Maurice, you know, and I didn't really like that. So everyone called me Maurice, 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 you know, East London, Maurice. And I was like, yeah, Maurice, I'm Maurice. Um, but in in my culture, they take your uh, middle name and they put it first. So I was after my dad. And it was funny because it was only the first time I went to the doctors on my own. And they, and they said, your name? And I said, yeah, Maurice. And they were like, uh, we don't have a Maurice down here. I was like, Capilaire. And they were like, um, no, we have a Joseph. And I was like, oh, uh, Joseph Maurice. I went, oh, that's me. So, the, you know, until you're about 13 and you're taking responsibility and going to appointments on your own and things like that, I didn't even realize. So, yeah, it's it, it, Maurice is, uh, is, is, is what I go by. Okay. And uh, do you want to be called Morris or Maurice? Uh, I prefer Maurice now. Uh, it well, takes me go. back to my roots and my dad, and yeah. Okay, and uh, how? How? And just to cut in there, the yeah. reason I got, I went to Maurice because it was a bit of a when I moved to America, you know, I'd say I, I'm Maurice, and they'd be like Mars, 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 and they just I, I I was like, what's going on? No one can get me a name, and I was like, this ain't working, and um, and I'm very big on introductions and first impressions, right? So I was like, I got I got to do something, so I switched back. And I even made my now wife, my girlfriend at the time, she was like, Morris, Morris. And I said, no, I'm going to go by Maurice, my, my original name. So I even had to train her to change back to Maurice. So that's why I kind of went back as well, funny little. Well, it's, yeah. it's, really fair. it's quite an American. They do like a Maurice in America, don't they? They don't, yeah. really have, they don't do a Maurice. Um, what's your, how old are you? I am 55. And looking good on it. Uh, what's you, uh, where did you grow up? Whereabouts in East London? Whereabouts? Um, suburb of East London, uh, on the, on the verge of, uh, borders of Dagnum, um, uh, a place called Goodmaze, um, uh, Ilford. Um, so just on the outskirts of East London. A big, uh, a big area actually, as we've discovered in these podcasts for rave music uh, in the nineties, uh, uh, interesting to explore those reasons why well, we might do so a bit later. Uh, you live now in LA, so we don't have to ask you that. We know that. What's your relationship status? Uh, I'm married. I've been married for 17 years now. Blimey. Well done. Uh, any kids and how old are they? 
Yeah, um, so I have uh, three children here with my wife in America. Um, I have an 11-year-old boy, a 10-year-old girl, and uh, my youngest is a boy. It'll be eight um, next month. Okay, very good. But I also have, sorry to cut you, but I also have uh, um, children from a past relationship. I have a daughter that's 32 uh, that's given me two grandchildren. And then I have a son who's uh, 20 years old. Wow. Okay. There's a, a lot going on in your family. You've got a, a, a lot of uh, children, grandchildren. Um, what's your, in terms of music, what's your favorite non-rave tune? Non-rave tune, um, really, I'm Rare Groove is where I'm at. Um, so something like uh, Silver Shadow or Atlantic Star, Frankie Beverly, um, I listened to uh, some Washington, uh, Grover Washington Jr., some old like jazz funk. Um, usually uh, feel good, uplifting tunes. Okay. Uh, what's the most famous person you've ever met? Um, I've met a few, um, like Tom Hanks, um, but I would say the one I probably was closest to would be uh, Erica Badu. Um, I... During my time here in America, I have um, I was doing partly uh, events and premieres, uh, working with a team that did premieres. So I would do the um, VIP concierge. So I would look after the artists that would come in and um, you know make sure they were okay in the green room, make sure they had what they wanted, um, and just make sure they were okay. And um, yeah, uh, Erica Badu, I say was one of the most eccentric and uh one of the biggest artists yeah nice uh, were there any absolute rotters um <laughs> no not really no not really to be honest with you well that's no. good well that's good to, surprising but good to know um yeah. and uh, do you have any sporting heroes yeah sporting hero would be uh muhammad ali why no i'm really joking uh and uh, what would you say is your 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 best quality my best quality, I think, is my positivity. Okay. I always, I always uh, try and have a positive outlook at it. You know, even when things are bad, um, I have faith that things are going to work out, and I try and be positive. Okay. Well, that's probably being tested to the limit at the moment. Uh, and uh, what's your worst quality? Um, my worst quality, I think. Um, let me think about that. Um, probably being right <laughs> i've had to learn i've had to learn life's not really about right and wrong i like i like i've, I've grown up a lot of like uh calling people out when they're wrong and trying to put them on the right uh you know just making them see if it's wrong i'm gonna call it right i've had to learn that life's not about right and wrong it's about moments of feeling so i kind of uh, i've learned to deal with that but that was definitely and speaking my mind when I wanted, how I wanted, I've had to learn that as well. It didn't um, always go down well. Politically savvy now in your uh, in your fifties. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, at last. <laughs> well, it's nice to know that you get there. I mean, because uh, I'm still very much learning that. So uh, good to know that I might one day get there. Uh, and uh, if you had one wish in the world, what would it be? Um, for my children to achieve their dreams and 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 live their life um, happily and uh, just achieve their dreams and their their wildest dreams and their goals. 
Nice. Very good. Uh, well, that is uh, MCMC's uh, Get to Know You section. You're listening to the 90s Raid Podcast. You can get in touch with us on email. Hello at the 90s uk. You can also uh, follow us on all social media channels. Uh, you just know, search for Raw the 90s Rave Podcast. <laughs> So, Maurice, you were born uh, in East London. We've uh, discovered that in the 1970s. What was life like in the Capillaire household? Was it a musical place? Uh, well, I, I was actually born uh, in Mauritius. Ah. Yeah, I was born on an island uh, called Mauritius, uh, which is off the east coast of Africa. And um, I am the youngest of eight, and uh, I was I came to England. My mother and dad brought me to England when I was uh, around eight, nine months old. So I was just a baby in arms. Um, and journey uh, for my parents was quite a long one. Um, they couldn't afford to bring us all at one time, eight kids. So they took me, the youngest and the oldest, uh, to look after me and came and worked and would send money back home and send from like one brother or one sister so send for the siblings. It took my parents about 11 years to get our family together in England. Um, growing up, uh, it was a musical household. My my dad would be the musical one, but he would listen to uh, Sega music, which is like a calypso from my island in Mauritius. Um, um, Elvis as well was a, a big, uh, what I, I would listen to from, from my mum and dad's standpoint. But... I learned music really, I, I started to discover music from my brother, um, John, who was into jazz, funk, soul, rare groove. And he had a sound system with his boys. So he was uh, like eight, nine years older than me. And he was playing these parties and, and you know, that's where I really come to discover music, uh, the love of music and uh, and it was, you know, all funk and rare groove music. And what was it like uh, as a young Mauritian boy in East London in the 70s and, and the 80s? Oh, mate, it, I, I grew up with uh, skinheads around me pretty much in Dagnum, uh, around where I was. Uh, I think there was only one, two, two people of colour on my street. Um, and it was, it was very racist. Um, used to navigate, you know, skidheads going to school, in school, um, around the school, in Dagnum. So it was, it was, okay, you know, it, it, it was a hard, hard, hard area to grow up in, to be honest with you. But, um, but I, looking back, I realised that. But when I was going through it, I was just going through it and it kind of just toughened me up quickly. Did that help with uh, moving into the rave scene as an artist, and particularly one that's so prominent, being an MC, the, you know, the focal point for for, for raves? Um, yeah, what well, being being hardened or growing up, um, you know, with with skinheads? Do you mean? Well, I mean that one comes from the other, doesn't it? So uh, being hardened in that way. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, um, just surviving on the streets, uh, and and because. You know the rave, the rave thing started from the streets, right? Um, and it's it it definitely helped me to 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 hold my own in a very highly competitive um, um, scene. Yeah, definitely. 
Okay. And, and how did you find you, you? We know you were a raver first and then you became an MC. How did you find your way into the rave scene? What was your first sort of exposure to it? And how did you then become a regular? Yeah. Um, well, my brother, so there, there were two paths really. As a raver, my brother took me to a rave in, um, in Stratford. I don't remember what it was, but it was at like a next to a sewage plant, right? It was just like near roundabout. Um, and it was, um, he took me there and my brother was always like very street savvy and, and part of, you know, a kind of a crew that was like, we ain't paying to get in. We're going to climb over the fence, you know, just like real rago kind of upbringing. So he took me and I was like, wow, this is nuts, you know, people on stage and lights and, you know, everyone just like, just dancing. And I was like, wow, this is, this is super cool. It's like, there's no attitude here. Um, from, from my previous kind of experiences of going out, uh, where you kind of had to watch your back, um, that wasn't happening. So it was my brother that exposed me to that. And that was the first time as well. Like, I, you know, I dabbled in, he, he went here, try this. And, and gave me, I think, half an E or something. I was like off my face and, 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 and I was. What a great was brother. He sounds like uh, my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, that was really where I went out. Um, but musically was, was, was very different uh, entering the scene. And what what did you did, what made you think that you know what I, I want to be an MC here? Uh, I mean, James W. F. Cooper has asked, what inspired you uh, to first pick up a pen, start writing lyrics, and 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 who was it that first noticed you, you had some potential in this area? Yeah, so it really goes back to um, I when I got into music, I was um, in studios and I was a I was a songwriter. I was writing songs. I wanted to be an artist. Um, uh, if I were to pick an artist I was trying to be like at that time, it would be how Craig David kind of came up. So I was writing kind of soulful stuff um, and singing in the studio and um, trying to make my way as an artist, recording artist. So I was in a studio a lot, hanging with musicians. I couldn't play anything, but I was very good at um, writing songs. I'd write songs without um keys and have melodies in my head and then sit down with producers and and songwriters and we've developed songs so i was on the path of um of being an artist and i got myself a record deal um with an independent label and uh but that fell through right at the end just when we had the recordings together they went bust so i was left with my tapes and i was a little bit discouraged and what happened was i um was in a studio one day with Travis from Satin Storm. And um, he said, hey, he said, he said, hey, Morris, um, you, you, you MC, right? And I'm like, well, I'm a lyricist, right? You know, sing, I'm not a rapper, but I write lyrics. That's what I do. And he said, oh, um, I know somebody that's looking for um, a front man. They are, um, they've got a record deal and they're, they're looking for a front man. And I, uh, they were like, are you interested? I said, sure. So they gave me the number. I called up and, and spoke to, to them. And it was a band called Pneumatic. And I went to their, their flat, right? And they had a little uh, studio there in their flat. And um, they were like, 
you know, what do you do and everything else? I was telling them I'm a lyricist and everything else. And they were like, well, we've just got a deal with XL Recordings. We're going on a tour and, um, you know, we need a front man. So I was like, okay. And I always remember the night before I went, uh, I called one of my mates over and I said, I've got this, I've got a meeting with this uh, group tomorrow. They got a record deal or something. So we came over and I started writing lyrics and playing music and just practicing for hours with him, right? And so I went there and I went there prepared and they were playing me some breakbeat tunes that they had. Um, and I was just rhyming over it and they were just like, oh yeah, yeah, uh, are you available? And I was like, sure. So next thing I knew, I I was literally on tour and I was standing, uh, I, I'd play a few gigs and the gigs were getting bigger and bigger as we were going through the tour. And I'll always remember one day I was at a huge event, first time a big, huge event. And they're like, oh yeah, who's on stage? You, you know, well, only Prodigy, you know? I'm like, what? Prod I'm like, Prodigy's on stage, SL2, that's why I met Slip Matt and the SL2 team. Um, and we were all part of the same label. It was an XL recording showcase. And it's, um, and here I was on this huge stage. And, um, and that's when the penny dropped for me that, hold on, I'm over here trying to be an artist, trying to get a record deal the traditional way, right? And wait for an advance and that's how you're gonna get paid and then your record sales. And I was like, and here we are, here I am, doing all the things I love, which is ex lyrics. I've got a crowd in front of me and I'm getting paid at the end of the night. I'm like, I'm sold. And that was it. It was the light bulb that went off in my head. And I no longer really tried to be a recording artist. I was like, this is where I want to be. This is my path. Um, so that's what got me to really intro to the scene and open my eyes to the scene and wanting to be an artist and, and, and an MC. And you must have impressed them because uh, you well, impressed other people because you latterly, you, you then were going to be Enjoy's MC as well, right? Isn't that correct? And then you unfortunately were, you were very young, 1989, sort of 18, 19, 20, and you unfortunately uh, went to prison. And, and Paul F has asked about that. Can, can, I, can I ask? Because I, I don't think I've, I've ever heard you talk about what it was for or what it was like. Yeah, you know, growing up on the streets of East London trying to make some money. So basically, um, at around 19 years old, uh, my dad passed away. And, um, you know, my, all my all my brothers and sisters were all big, they're all grown, and I really didn't have any guidance. I no one sat me down and said, look, you know, dad's passed. How you feeling? What's going on? And I was at home with my mum living at home with my mum and I saw my mum struggling because she wasn't getting the income coming in. And I'm trying to get jobs and um, I couldn't get a job. Um, and I just was really, really at a low point in my life when I was about 19. Lost, really as a kid lost. And started hanging around with some of the boys and met some boys that were driving flash cars, had TVs in their cars. And I was like, what? Right? I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> and they were like, oh, well, you know, uh, we're doing this and that. And, and I said, well, what's this and that? And they were like, we're doing uh, burglary. And I'm like, what? So anyway, I said, I'll come along. 
Next thing I knew, I was kicking in doors and, and nicking people's TVs. And I, honestly, I must have done two things with them, right? Two burglaries with them in a very close range, like one day and then the next day. And I came home one day, uh, I was walking home and the police were at me, at, were outside my house and I never went in. And I realized I was like, oh shit, it's gotta be for me. So I was like, wow. So basically um, I got nicked for that. And what happened was um, the crew that I'd done it with had a long history of it and they were being watched. So I got lumped in with everything they did. And um, that's, um, that's when I, uh, I, I, got, I, got, I got five years, but two years concurrent. So, um, you know, it, uh, yeah, two years. That's a long time uh, for burglaries. I, I mean, oh, it, mate, it was my, I mean, it was my, anything. yeah, it was my first offence. My first, my very first involvement with the police and I, I got and a, the reason was because of the severity of what they had been doing and i i just got lumped in with them so when that when the judge when the judge told you five years can you describe your feelings at that point because you know, you're just building to become potentially this you know you're on the cusp of something great work-wise and you've made a mistake and it's led to this that's a a bloody long time, isn't it? Five years. Can you describe those feelings when he said that? Yeah, so, you know, making sure the timeline is right. This was before I kind of started doing the music, right? This okay. was just before. Um, I I was still dabbling in the music and I was like, oh, you know, I want to do this. I'm writing songs, but I wasn't getting anywhere. Um, so this was before the new man okay. kicked in. Um, but yeah, when, when I was in court, because of the two offences that, that they lumped me with, they gave me two five-year sentences. Uh, one, th first they said two years, then five years, and then five years for saying else. And then they said concurrent, but I didn't know what concurrent meant. So I thought, shit, I've got five years. So the, honestly, mate, the ground opened up and swallowed me in. And on top of being um, lost, as a young man, my dad not being around, seeing my mum suffer, and then this to happen, yeah, it, it, yeah, by far the lowest point of my life. What was it like inside? Um, at first, uh, we went. I went. I got moved around a couple of uh, London jails like Brixton, Pentonville, and that was hard because uh, straight away I was in. Um, you know, on my own in a single cell, uh, wasn't used to that. Um, and that was tough. That was tough. Like a 23 hour bang up, come out for lunch, walk around the yard. That was it next year. But when I got out on bail, I went back, uh, and actually served. I went to a youth prison cause I was 19 and 20. Uh, it was 20 by the time they, um, sentenced me. And, um, I went to Ipswich, a prison in Ipswich, and it was an open prison. So while I was far away from everything, it wasn't having that experience of being banged up for 23 hours. I was like, well, I'll take this any day. 
And so you're actually finding lockdown very, very straightforward. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and uh, <laughs> what is it about you? Um, did did you at that point? Did that focus your mind? Because we've interviewed a few uh, a few people. A lot of people in drum and bass scene, of course, came from the streets, and therefore they were inclined to behaviour that did put them behind bars. Brian G, for example, talks about how music saved him from a life of crime. Did it focus your mind and make you think, "I'm never coming back here again"? Oh, 100%, 100%. And I'd say it's probably the best thing that happened to me that I got banged up early because it made me realise this is not a life for me. Right. Um, so, you know, I learned the lesson earlier on. A lot of my friends and that didn't learn that lesson. They got away with stuff and then ended up serving bigger sentences later on in their life. And would you did you spend the time to work on your craft at all? You know, like we often hear, you know, MC Junior went to prison and then he came back out. We've interviewed Force and Styles and he came back out and uh, Helter Skelter Nightlife 99. And he just, you know, he, he just went mad on the mic. And it's one of the fantastic, one of the most fantastic pieces of MC. And I've, I've heard certainly from him. And he was practicing on the wing. I've got, and you hear a lot of people like Fearless is an example. We'll talk about him later. Um, but he was on the wing, uh, and he was working on, you know, listening to his some sets and his headphones on his Walkman and writing, you know, working on his craft. Did you did you do that? No, not really. Um, I was, I was, I think my mind was still lost, right? Because um, lost my dad, um, banged up. Um, within that time as well, that from bail to being banged up, uh, I met I met my daughter Jade's mum, and we started dating. Um, and I just had we just had Jade, my daughter. So I was I wasn't thinking musically at all. I was just trying to survive and and just get through it um, on a day to day basis. I really didn't have focus at that point. Um, so had you just become a father uh, when you were imprisoned? Correct. Yeah, Fucking I just hell. so yeah. In between, in between getting out on bail and getting sentenced, um, I became a dad. Yeah. I mean, that must be one of the worst feelings. I mean, because not not only you're getting five years for your first offence, you got a kid outside. I mean, the, the the feeling must be so helpless. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it was also, you know, feeling I let my mum down. Um, you know, she had to come and visit me and everything else. Um, so, yeah, but I've got to tell you, to this day, I learned, I discovered the power of making your dreams come true when I was actually in jail. And it was, um, while I wasn't writing, so I wasn't focused on music, but um, a friend of mine, a good school friend of mine sent me a book um and it was uh thinking with pma positive mental attitude and it was the first time i'd read something which was empowering uh like self-improvement and there was a chapter i'll always remember this and i've lived by this rule for the rest of my life from the moment i read it it gave you exercises to kind of relax like tense your eyes tense your head relax and then move through your body and then fade off into a dream right and dream your biggest dream allow your mind to dream and my dream i always remember was i was on a stage and there were thousands of people in front of me and there were lights going off and i felt this rush come through my body and that was the dream that was actually the dream and Later on in life, um, I'll always remember I had that dream come back to me while I was on stage. Uh, and, and it came back to me. I was in front of the crowd. I was like, 
wow, this is it. This is when I was locked up in a room all those years ago. It made it. So that's how I live my life. Uh, and that's basically what's carried me through life is dream big and go for your dreams. Well, you did dream big and you, and you made it, frankly. Uh, I think I think it's impossible to deny otherwise. Um, can you describe your style as an MC? I, I, do you see yourself as a hype man, a lyricist, a bit of both? What is your style? I say a bit of both, but I always want to be a, a crowd pleaser. I wanted to be a crowd pleaser. My, my first uh, ambitions to be anything as a kid was to be an actor. Uh, when I was um, in final years of high school, uh, I got into the National Youth Theatre. Right. Uh, yeah, and I wanted to be uh, an actor. And what happened was I went home, you know, it was a real um, honour to be part of this. It was a school programme through um, the British Isles, um, and they chose around 12 kids from the whole of the country, Scotland and Ireland, um, to be part of this programme. And I, I went through. And after it, they asked me to stay into uh, and do a production but there was no um, no money in it, right? So I went home and I said, Mom, Dad, I've got into the National Youth Fair. Yeah, I'm going to be an actor. And they said, oh, no, Maurice, no. You have to get a job. We can't pay for this. We have to get a job. So basically, you know, no fault of their own, but they killed my dream. They killed my dream. They thought, it was, they, and, they, thought, they, thought they were trying to help, right? Yeah, they definitely. They, like I say, no four their own, right? They, they're, they're born from a different, uh, you know, back world, right? Different time and place and everything else. So I rebelled. That's and and that's what got me into music. I totally rebelled against. I started growing dreadlocks. I got into sound system, um, and and that's what where I really came in was reggae. But going back to your question about my style. Yeah, lyricist comes from writing songs, being able to put pen and paper, hear melodies. Um, but the acting part was the showman, right? So I would go on stage and I would be all about the showman. I didn't care that anything was being recorded, right? I wasn't wondering what I was going to sound like afterwards. I would talk to someone and I'd say, oh, mate. You're, look at your boat race, right? And they'd be like, oh, oh my God, you want it, you want it? And I was just like, I wanted the energy from the people. I wanted that energy. So sometimes it would be a lyrical thing where I'm making them dance, but another thing, I needed energy from them. So, you know, so I think a bit of both, but definitely as a showman and, and trying to be a crowd pleaser. Okay, and uh, could you? What was your first? I mean, you've you've mentioned about the those gigs, but in terms of the raves that we all know about, what were your was your first big rave as an MC uh, in the nineties? Well, so the first big rave was um, I wasn't on the bill. The first time I went, uh, I had made friends with uh, a lady called Vivian Bellamy, and she was Carl Cox's manager. Or she was his agent. Well done. Good uh, good networking. <laughs> yeah, great networking. <laughs> so um, she said uh, she was going there. We, we became friends. And she said, come out with me. So we went down and she went up to Carl. Um, and it was, I don't know if it was fantastic. Honestly, going back so far now, 
Well, just a few people that. have asked about this. Is this your Big Bang Fantasia in 1993 in Glasgow? It could be. It could be. Yeah, I think it was because I wasn't I, on I the I tell front. you what, a lot of people, a lot of people have been saying, if this is the correct the correct set, a lot have been talk. I've asked about this set. It's obviously a set that's left a lasting impression on a, on quite a large number of people. Well, yeah. So, and now how that came about was we were at the back of the stage. I was with Vivian. I wasn't on the lineup, and Carl Cox. She introduced me to Carl first time I met Carl. And she said, you know, he's an MC, he's really good. Like, do you want to get him up there with you? And everything. And Carl went, okay. And and <laughs> and at this time, you really didn't have MCs, right? I know Everson was doing his thing, and um, but there really weren't no MCs. It was, it was, you know, all about a DJ, and especially Carl Cox. So I went up there on this huge stage, and I just felt the vibe. I was very conscious that. This is Carl Cox and his music's got to breathe 90%. And I started um, just, just coming in with a, a little a little few fast kind of rhymes, you know, I made it all about the music, you know, but if it beats them banging, things like that, um, little, little riffs like that. And that was my feel, first real exposure to a huge audience at a rave. Were you bricking it? Um, a bit, but I learned. I learned very early on uh, in in even with acting is that nerves embrace your nerves, and and when 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 you feel nervous about going up on stage or so, that means something big's about to happen, and you need to embrace that, and that's energy that you use. So yeah, you're bricking it, but you're excited at the same time. And if you don't have nerves, then I guess you're you're not really you're not on that edge. You're not pushing yourself to that limit, and therefore you're Absolutely. never gonna that full uh, full exposure. Um, and so uh, after that, things must have grown uh, a rate of knots. And that's that's the beauty, I think, of the '90s rave scene that we find is just that things move so quickly. So you know, you're talking, uh, you know, your your first gig there, you must have then started getting booked a lot uh, a lot more. How did you then grow from a guy that just sort of blagged a set on Carl Cox at Fantasia to being a main a main act who a lot of people that we've been, you know, when we asked for questions have said, MCMC is one of the very few MCs that I would have just paid to go and watch, you know, if they were on the bill. That's very rare. Wow. Well, that's great to hear. Um, so it, it really went from uh, being on stage with Carl Cox and then having that uh, exposure with Pneumatic and going out on tour. I took that, um, what we were going out on tour, and what I used to do was I used to make friends with the promoters or the stage managers, right? So I started taking numbers down, and I used that as leverage to get on on, on a bill. So I would call uh, promoters up, say, I'm not on tour right now, I'm pneumatics thing, you know, um, we're looking at another tour coming up. I'd always say, we're, we're going on tour with Prodigy again. So you, as a promoter, you're not going to ignore that, right? I mean, so, and I would say, but I'm available. You know, you've got any events. And they were like, oh, yeah, we'll have you. So I started getting booked for and, and, and started making friends with promoters. I learned very early on that um, promoters were king, you know. So if you want to get on a bill, it's promoters. And then DJs are next, right? You got a 
befriend and and just make sure you have an alliance uh, with the DJ. So um, that's how we kind of rolled, and 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 then it started being on bigger stages. But then it was also getting into the scene, the club scene, because I wasn't really in the club scene. I was doing the big events, but then naturally, these promoters from clubs are look. They're very aware of Fantasia and these, you know, together as one and, you know, some big, big raves anyway. And and they were like, oh, yeah, you're MCMC. Like they knew me. I was like, well, I'm available. Can I come and play at your club? And then I started really networking with um, more of the street promoters um, and, and, and getting in and, and creating just, I, I'd do a set and they loved me and, I got business sense and, you know, my personality and, and it took off from there, really. Well, we hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw, but now's where we ask you inevitably for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free, taking no wages at this project to create this podcast. And it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that, thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great news. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, we've got big, big plans for the future, but we aren't going to be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're going to need to keep on funding Raw, and that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favourite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and if you're not in a position to donate because we know it's a tough time for everybody you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on youtube facebook instagram and twitter you just need to search for raw the 90s rave podcast go and do that now please massive love and respect to each and every one of you and what sort of um style of djs suited you uh best um djs Early days, early days, Andy C, right, was always a DJ I like working with. This was before he was big. This was when a telepathy. We used to play in, in some pub down in um, Forest Gate, I think. And you'd be lucky if sometimes it was a telepathy event. Um, and, and sometimes there'd be like 15 people in there and sometimes it'd be packed. But I go in every week, and Andy would be in there, and I always loved the the beats that Andy used to throw down. So, so breakbeat, um, always like DJs with a, uh, that would allow uh, play more of a breakbeat style that would allow the for me to jump in and, and get some lyrics going on. And uh, Ben Ben Zarana has asked, uh, what was your favourite rave to perform at outside of the big multi arena events? Because you, you are really, you were sort of the voice of Helter Skelter, so I assume that that's one of your favourites uh, of the big multi uh, arena. Oh, yeah, abs- absolutely Helter Skelter. Um, so two, two come to mind very fondly. Um, Elevation. Elevation became my home. I became the resident. Um, really, me and Funky, the promoter, uh, became really best friends. I was actually um, best man at his wedding. Um, and... 
But his events were always great, whether they'd be in a club or whether they'd be in a Roller Express. The other one that I always enjoyed and looked forward to, and they're quite rare, were um, Orange at the Hippodrome. Um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, you're in the Hippodrome, right? No, no street kids going in a Hippodrome. It's a tourist club, right? But when you're in such a beautiful place, when you get in there, and we would do it on Carnival weekend, and it would be rago and dark, mate. You would have to watch your back in that place, and I loved it. I loved it because that's where I came from. Because my first real, 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 real MC and outside of the scene came from uh, soundboy clashes or sound uh, house parties. You know, you're in a corner, no one can see you. They can only hear your voice if you're on the mic over reggae music. So it took me back to those days. And so Orange at the Hippodrome, absolutely. But then, you know, Elevation uh, any anywhere. Did you like those dingy, dark raves better? Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. It just, Even when the guns were going off in the mid-90s and all that business? Yeah, listen, mate, I... I <laughs> It was how I grew up, right? It was how I grew up. Like, I navigated through skinheads. I found, um, you know, when my school merged with another school, and that was the first time I really started interacting with, uh, you know, black black people. My two best friends uh, came from the other school. They're two black, and I'm, I latched onto them, and we, we're still friends to this day. So, yeah, just, just navigating the streets of East London is grimy, mate. It's hard. So, it... Yeah, I loved it. I, honestly, mate, it was, I felt well at home there. I felt I, I held me own. I wasn't scared of anyone. I watched, I made sure that I wasn't causing any trouble for anyone, but I made sure no one was going to cause trouble with me as well. And I loved it. And what were the worst raves that you ever played? Do any jump to mind of just like, God, that was a nightmare. I hated that. Um, I didn't, I mean, later on, if, I mean, not in the 90s so much. Um, I was just happy to to do any rave and, and I enjoyed some more than others, but I never kind of hated a rave. Um, but after the 90s, when I started touring with Adam F and, and Jay Magic, we, we would play somewhere like colleges. I never enjoyed doing college events. Um, but no, I didn't really hate anything. I, I, I loved it all. I took it all. Did you ever um, get ripped off? Because, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of DJs say, I mean, if you've been a DJ or an artist, you, you, there is no way you haven't at some point been ripped off by a promoter. Were, were there, did you ever, or did, did you manage to navigate that as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I never really got ripped. To be honest with you, the way I came to the scene, coming off of the back of pneumatic, coming off of big events, coming into the club scene, I always found I got that respect, right? So... I'd do an event and 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 I was I was always um open to doing it cheap, you know. Uh, I'd even do some events for nothing. So most of the promoters I worked with um never messed with me, you know, and 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 I, I never really had that issue to be honest with you. That's good. Uh, and uh, one of the things that a lot of MCs it seems like a pain in the ass frankly um is the the shouts and but they are sort of integral and people love people love getting them they love hearing themselves again on the tapes how did you feel about shouts uh i like i like having shouts but sometimes you're in a zone and when someone's tugging your leg 
right? Or, you know, <laughs> trying to get your attention, it kind of throws you off, right? So um, navigating an MC, being an MC, you're navigating a lot of things. You're listening to the DJ and you're connecting the DJ to the crowd. So you're waiting for the breaks. You're, waiting, you're, 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 you're seeing how the crowd's reacting and you're seeing whether you need to do something to liven them up or just let it roll. So I always felt, you know, shouts had their place and um, it, it it could get annoying because, you know, they're like, oh, me, 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 me. I'm like, look, just go and enjoy yourself. I, you know, I liken it to, I see crowds nowadays and they've got their phone up. They've got their phone up. I'm like, look, you're in the moment. Be in the moment. Be in the moment, right? So, because that's what I was always about, being in the moment. Um, so it didn't really bother me, but it could get annoying sometimes. You you talked uh, a little bit earlier about Carl Cox and about how you um, you let the music breathe. Uh, I think there's probably a lot of MCs that don't get that, and a lot of DJs will complain that a lot of MCs don't get that. You are one of the people you see, you know, people who talk about you now do say that that was the beauty of him. And you went to, sh- it's the same with GQ. It's the same with, you know, the very, very top ones. It's like they knew, they know when to shut up because ultimately without the music, there is, it's, it's just you shouting down a microphone. Um, but without the, you know, but without the MC, the music still plays. How much of that do you think came from that very first moment when you got on stage with Carl Cox and you were like, I've got to let this breathe. And did you then go, did, did you know that before or did you realise that on that moment because you were the nobody and he's the big DJ and you're getting this opportunity, you can't, you know, shout a load of stuff over it. You've got to, you know, let the music do its work. How much was that that you already knew or how much did that, you learn that on that night that then shaped your future career? Um, I, I would say that I was always in tune that it was the DJ that was the main attraction. And people pay to come and see the DJ. And um, so, and the other thing that kept me humble was when you're working with DJs that are legends and and probably the ones that taught me the biggest lesson and made me say, I need to, you know, pipe up a bit more and just, you know, let it roll would be uh, Fabian Groove and uh, Hype. Because as we were emerging, I was coming up, um, you know, the huge DJs. You want to be on, they're, they're on the lineups, right? They're on the lineups you want to be on. So it was also making sure you had that relationship. And I actually learned that a lot from GQ. Because when I came in, um, GQ was the man. And still is, right? One of, one of my top two MCs, right? Um, and I learned from him. And listening, to, you know, watching him at AWOL, how, you know, the MC, you can still come across, but when you're working with these big DJs, you need to let them have their moment and you need to let them shine because you want them walking away happy with you. Because the last thing you want is they're saying, who's on the lineup? And they say, well, I don't want MCMC on the set with me. Right. And that would happen. That would happen. DJs will get booked and they say, I don't want this MC. I only want him or I don't want no one because there was too much talking going on. Now, if I was playing in a smaller club, right, and the DJ didn't have such a big name, I'd be all over that set. I wouldn't be paying mind to his breaks and his breathing. I'd be like, this is my, this is like 
it's like practice. Let's go. Let's let's have it. You know, and and they enjoyed that too because they 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 bounce off the energy and so it was always depending on who the DJ was and and yeah, just just learning to navigate. That's how I learned to navigate now. Uh, well, we've uh, learned about your early years, Maurice, in in the game, how you became a top rave MC. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of MCs, a couple of other MCs, so we're going to uh, fillet you for some uh, your views on on other MCs because obviously Jungle and Drum and Bass has become such a, a haven for MCs. Uh, we'll get your views on that very shortly here on uh, the Raw the Night is Rave podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, why don't you email us hello at the night is rave podcast.co.uk uh, or you can get us on all our social media channels. And if you do fancy keeping this show on the road, you can uh, go to gofundme.com forward slash the night is rave podcast and donate a couple of quid or two. We'd be much obliged. So, Maurice, uh, in terms of uh, you and uh, a couple of notable others, the late Stevie Hyper D, we mentioned him a little bit earlier, is one of Jungle's much-loved MCs. We've got you to thank for him being one of the main stages. Isn't that right? I don't know if many people know this. Uh, you know what? Stevie was always going to be uh, big on the scene. He really, really was. Uh, it was, I think, just fortunate for him and me that we met at the time uh, that we did. And that was before he he was known. He was doing a couple of um, uh, events, like, but real, like, you know, smaller ones, like, um, like a breakfast club, right? Uh, he would do... Uh, one or two other events, but he wasn't on the big stage. And um, I met Stevie um, at Elevation. I was at an Elevation, and um, after Elev- after the night had done, I was looking to still party. I was still hyped up, and that's the thing with them things like you know, you're going right to the end, and it's like okay, it's over, go home. It's like no, I'm not going home. I want to party now. So uh, Stevie and another MC called Daddy Angie, they were kind of like partners, um, came up to me and they said, oh, wicked, wicked, no, wicked. And we started talking and they were like, what are you up to? And they were like, oh, I might go back to my yard and, and smoke some weed. I was like, oh, I'll bring you some drink. Let's go. Can I come? So I went back with to Angie's house, Daddy Angie's house with Stevie and we sat in the front room and we were drinking and we were smoking and I started hearing about, you know, what they were doing and, um, and they were just bigging me up. Right. They were just bigging me. I am CMC, you know, killing it. You're doing this, you're doing that. And I was like, wicked. And I was like, uh, and, and we would start rhyming and doing some raps to play some music. And I'd be like, what? I was like, hold on. And they were very lyrical. They were more lyrical than what I were. They came from more of a rap background. Um, they just were all about their lyrics, uh, which I really wasn't, to be honest with you. You know, I, I was talking about the beats, the DJ, the music, the hype, um, with some lyrics thrown in there, right? But uh, all kind of feel-good stuff. They were deep on their lyrics, and I was just blown away. I was, you guys are wicked. So... Um, yeah, we became friends and we hung about and they were an inspiration for me because he was the first guys I started hanging about with that other MCs and more lyrical. So um, we started hanging about and I'm like, okay, okay. So when my started going, I said, all right, let's 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 form up. Let's, let's create um, a team. 
and we called ourselves uh, the Come Up Crew, right? The Come Up Crew. And what uh, we said, all right, well, how are we going to do this? There's three of us. And we said, all right, we're all going to dress the same, right? We're going to wear the same hat. We're going to wear the same shirt. We're going to go out shopping. And we're going to come out like we are a crew. There's three of us. And so I started phoning up some of my promoters. And like Sting was one of the first ones uh, from telepathy. And I'm like, Sting, I've got some boys with me. Um, we're calling ourselves the Come Up Crew. It's a new thing. It's more entertaining. And because I had such a good relationship with not just Sting, but other promoters, they bought into what I was saying. I was saying, we're bringing more entertainment factor. You know, we're not going to kill it on the mic, like, you know, uh, continuously. We're just going to let the music breathe. But we've got three of us. We've got rhymes we've written where we pass the mic to each other. We do like two lines, pass it. And man, we, we and that's how basically I introduced Stevie to more of the um, more promoters. And we started doing that, and then it started seeing talent, and then the break really came with elevation. I approached Funky, I was the resident. I said, You've got to put Stevie on a lineup. And he was like, Okay, he trusts me. I said, Yeah, don't worry, it'll be good, I'll be there, everything will be good. Stevie came on, uh, elevation, and I will never forget, he would MC right by the DJ and Elevation always had a big stage, right? So you've got, you know, 15 feet or something from the DJ booth to the front of the stage. And I always went to the front of the stage. I was always on the edge, right? That's why they could tug my trouser leg and say, can I have a share, right? And I said, and Stevie was at the back and he was there singing, he was doing a great job, right? And I, I always remember, I turned around and I was at the front, he said, I grabbed him from the back and I said, I pushed him and he was like pushing me back. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, come on. And I pushed him to the front of the stage. I said, UMC right here, right here. And he was like, uh, okay. And he started doing his, his double lyrics, double time. And that was it. That was it. The crowd bought into him. He bought into it. And, and from there, Steve, Stevie just set his own legacy of light and, you know, the rest is history. Some some of those sets that you did uh, at Elevation were, they've gone down in history, really. Uh, some of the earliest sort of uh, back-to-backs, but also just the the, the the chemistry that you had were fantastic. But a lot of MCs wouldn't have done that. They would have, they wouldn't have introduced a potential rival <laughs> into, their, uh, into their sphere. That's right. You know, that's true, right? You know, because... Some people, well, all competition. You're potentially taking food off your own table. Did, did you ever see it? Like, did you never see it like that? Why didn't you see it like that? Or were you just so confident in your own uh, position and and confidence that that that, it, that you thought it was just fine? And actually, you were going to put more food on on your table because of the combination. Yeah, no, I was never. I, I was never worried, Stevie, because we were friends. We became like brothers. We were partners. He was always appreciative. He never, ever, you know, kind of showed me, well, I'm done with you now. I've got what I wanted out of you. We were always friends right to the bitter end. And I never felt that way. I was so confident in my own um, bookings and my own ability and what I was going to do. I never, ever, ever saw Stevie as a threat. Like uh, maybe I saw some of the other MCs or, or, or how, how, you know, 
our relationship was. With Steve, it was totally different. It was a brother thing. I wanted to help him out. I thought he could help me out. I, I was excited to partner with someone. And when he took off, I was just, I mean, always proud. Always, always. You know, I would I would grab him and I would kiss him on the cheek, you know. Like, Mate, it's, it's like my brother. Do you think that the, the, the rave scene could use more of that? Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, I think competition's always healthy. Um, but I think probably behind the scenes, you do get more of that. Maybe not in the sense of who's rising to the top, because I think Stevie was unique like that, right? So I'm sure other uh, DJs or MCs help in other MCs and work with them, but maybe they're just not rising to the top, right? Um, Stevie was new unique like that he he rose straight to the top and and rightly so because he brought he brought that double time to the scene he brought it no one else stevie stevie was the original man and let me tell you we talked a little bit about djs uh and and space giving them space stevie gave no one space not one <laughs> dj didn't give a crap he, i used to say to him you got to be careful, mate. you got to let the DJ. He goes, nah, man, nah, man, right? And he would do his thing. And Stevie really went through a period where DJs didn't want him on their set. Oh, trust me. I'm not going to mention no names, but trust me. I know this firsthand. And he probably lost a couple of bookings from that, but he didn't care because he was so on his path with how he was lyrically and focused. So that's where... You know, he would just stick to the raves that would book him for that, and he, he'd kill it. And then he just started building such a fan base. It was, and like I say, we all know we all know the rest, right? And and how did your on stage relationship work? How did you manage to not talk over each other? Was would you practice away from raves to make sure that you that you wouldn't you know cramp each other's style, or or you know you just knew exactly at which point that the mic would go across? Yeah, it was it was pretty much instinctive. Um, we would either do eight bars because I kind of knew his lyrics, he knew mine. So if I know he's going into this, he's going to go into an eight bar and he's going to do a chorus, right? So I'll jump in on the chorus and then he'll he'll come out and I'm in. Or he'll do four and then maybe a little nudge while he's doing his four. That means I'm in next. I do my four. He comes back in, right? And there were even times where it would be, because like I said, Stevie didn't want to be quiet. He just, he, he didn't want to, that I'd be like, signal him, yo, now we're going to be quiet. Right? So you, so, had to tell, you had to tell him to be quiet sometimes. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, listen, Stevie would chat, man. I mean, he loved it. So, and, and he was so good at it. He would chat. He would, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you ever fall out? Not really, no. Not really. Um, no, we didn't. We we didn't fall out. No, that's good. That's I mean, that, that, that's that's impressive, really. I, and you've got a photo uh, of yourself up together at home. I've seen it. It looked like Bubba's uh, so young. You must you must remember him daily. I do. I do. Me and Stevie actually started recording doing a. We were going to do. You know, because I, I I was still in the background while I was MCing, thinking, okay, I want to make a tune. or And I got some investors in, started to create a label for try and make a, 
uh, an imprint that way. And it was going to be uh, an, an EP with me and Stevie. So we had photo shoots and everything else. But the EP just didn't make it to the final product. Um, so I have uh, some great photos of me and Stevie dressed up, you know, looking like we're going to be on an EP cover. You look like a sort of street version of the Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had a few outfit changes, yeah. <laughs> uh, so some lovely photos. And he obviously, uh, of course, as we mentioned, he passed away. That was in July 1998. How did you find out? And uh, again, can you recall that feeling? I assume it must have been, one of, again, another one of your lowest points uh, aside from being sentenced to jail. Yeah, it, I mean, I think... I don't recall exactly, but I believe it was Funky from Elevation who got the word first and then called me. And then I called Daddy Angie because Angie, if you remember, I said, you know, he, I met Angie and Stevie together, but Angie kind of started doing his own thing and me and Stevie stayed in the scene. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was heartbreaking. It was a shock. It was heartbreaking. And yeah, real, 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 you know, an eye-opener as well, you know, how how frail life is and what we have. So, yeah, it was a, a real, real shock. If he hadn't passed away, obviously we're just making this up, it's imaginary, but if he hadn't passed away, what do you think he would have gone on to? Uh, well, Stevie would have definitely, I, he was already on the, doing this, uh, would have been a recording artist. He would have been making uh, a lot of tracks. Um, he would, he was already doing this and there's still some stuff out there. He was, I think that he would have probably grown and did his own events as well. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, his, his legacy, I think he, he would have just kept exploring how he could grow in the scene and, and, and expand his talents. He didn't have an out uh, strategy like yourself. I don't think so. No, <laughs> no, no. No, from my conversations with him, it, he, he really, he really didn't. He'd still be kicking it to this day. And uh, what uh, you, you've mentioned that you've got uh, two favorite MCs and you mentioned GQ. I assume the other one is Stevie Hyper D. Which other MCs, though, do you, uh, did you rate and, and really like? Yeah, yeah. So Stevie was my ultimate favorite, you know, but he's no longer with us here. So I would say that uh dynamite, anytime, anywhere, any place, uh dynamite, um, and GQ. Um, but you know, so those two for their uh their the way they can host, but when they jump in with lyrics, it's so on point so energetic their voices they they just really have the the package for me but when i look back you know when i look at mcs i see i, I pretty much rate everyone to be honest with you especially in the drum and bass jungle scene you know um five oh moose i mean legends mate legends and you know coming from the dancehall scene the reggae scene as well navigator um but skibbity um and Shabba, you know, I've watched Shabba in front of my eyes uh, just become who he became, like a legend. So when you say, it's funny because when you, you know, I think back now, I think the same way that Shabba went on with Skibba is how I would see Stevie, right? Because I will always remember 
we would be at telepathy, Andy C would be playing, and Steve would be on the mic, and Shabba, you know, it, you know, I think he, he was so young, right, and fresh faced, he'd be looking. And I saw, you know, I'd see him look at Stevie like, what the heck, you know? And it was Stevie that had that double time. And Shabba obviously took it to his own. Um, but Shabba and Skibber, Fearless, I think all these guys are, you know, I mean, their legacy speaks for itself, mate. They're still there doing it. It's just like, wow, you know? So to be honest with you, I rate all the Jungle Drum and Bass MCs. I really, really do. Um, on the hardcore side, you know, Charlie B, um, there, there are some others that I've worked with and, and I enjoy, but it's just a different kind of um, style, um, you know. What, makes a, good, more, what yeah. makes a good hardcore MC, in your view? Because you can do them both. Yeah, um, what makes a good hardcore MC? I think is is to find a melody within the 4-4. Right. If you're just shouting, then it just becomes like another beat in it. But, you know, once you find melodies in that 4-4, you stand out and you take the track with it. You, you kind of give it a different component. Um, so, yeah, that that's that's. I think for hardcore. I'm going to talk to you more about hardcore MCs uh, probably in episode two, but um, one name you mentioned there is, is fearless. Uh, and a few people have asked us about an interview that fearless gave where he said, you were never close. You had a fallout uh, after you warned him off from being friends with your then girlfriend, DJ rap. Um, and then you stopped getting bookings in London. Is that correct? Mate, listen, Honestly, I don't recall having, uh, I, I honestly don't recall having a word with Fearless. I, were we friends? No, we were never friends. We were never friends. We've never hung out afterwards. We, I, I remember on occasions we might be backstage and smoking a split or something, right? But, you know, if he said it, maybe it was. You know, look, um, I don't recall and I have no uh, bad feelings or anything. To, I, I, I rate him. I mean, seriously, he's a dope, dope MC. Maybe at that time, I felt like he was competition and um, just didn't give him the love maybe that he felt. But even with rap, I don't recall saying to anybody, you can't do the rap. She was, a, she was bigger than me, before me, right? So... It wasn't, I don't remember ever going to anyone say, you can't talk to her, she's my girl now. It's like, But you did, no. there was a period though, wasn't there, where you did not get some of the bookings in London and you had to go uh, go north and go around the country to uh -huh. get your bookings elsewhere. Did you know why? Surely this is the reason, right? Hell no, no, listen, no way, no way. So there is no way on this earth I didn't get bookings because of fearless, right? I didn't, I started getting booked less and less because London became more jungle drum and bass oriented, right? That's what happened. So because I was from the nineties and I came through the rave scene, uh, some of the newer promoters that were booking and making these events didn't regard me as suitable for their lineup. And I went through, um, you know, a number of years actually looking at, Shit, what's going on? Am I not popular anymore? So I would take what bookings I could because the, the bookings, 
that the events that were coming up in London weren't so much on the rape tip. They were more on the jungle tip. And now you had Ragga Twins, Death, 5-0, Moose. It was the Navigator, Fearless. It was the, the usual crowd. And that's who they would book from that kind of, you know, from that pool of MCs. So, yeah, that, that's why I, and, and, and for me, yeah, it was, it was a time when I started questioning, is this the end of me now? Is this yeah, the what is that? I was going to ask you, what does that do for, for an artist, and particularly an artist like an MC who is putting themselves out there? Uh, you, ba- you base yourself on confidence, right? That is a confidence job. What does that do to uh, an MC when they start to get that sort of existential crisis of like, am I done here? Like, what's going on? I'm not getting the bookings. I can't work it out. Yeah, it does. It does start to cause some kind of doubt in your mind about, you know, where you're at and where you're going. Um, How I managed to kind of navigate through that was to stay true to myself, right? To know who I am and know what I love, right? I love Ragga Jungle and I would have loved nothing more than to be on those, those events. And once again, even my voice, right? I don't come across ragga. I'm I'm a cockney, right? When I MC, I sound a bit like a cockney, and that doesn't really work well in a ragga rave, right? You know what I'm saying? You, you know, you are someone like this, you know what I mean? It's all of that. Instead of, oh, what's up, man? You get what I'm saying? I'm a totally different sound. So I took on the events that would come to me, um, my agent at that time was great, uh, Tanya, uh, from UMC. Um, and she would get me bookings, but, um, and really what, as I navigated through it and I kept getting more rave, uh, bookings up North and more rave, um, and feeling this way, I then came across, uh, Adam F and I met with Adam and I will tell you, I know, because he's told me that he reached out to a couple of MC. He was going on tour, had to deal with EMI. He was going on tour. And he said, I'm thinking of taking MCMC out on tour with me. And there were, I don't know how many, but a few MCs said to Adam, no, you shouldn't take him. He's dead. Right? So, but Adam took the faith in me because he saw me and we we had a connection and the rest is history so i went from being in the club scene and not knowing and being up north to now i'm all over the world front in one of the biggest artists uh worldwide in drum and bass with adam f uh going to places i've never been i wanted to go brazil japan and you know so what if he hadn't stepped in I don't know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, any. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I don't know. Uh, like I say, you, when you ask me what my, um, one of my strongest positivity and faith, you know, I just like, I'm going to stay positive. Um, and I don't know what would have happened, to be honest with you, but I was happy what did happen, for sure. Uh, and did Stevie as well help out with that? I, I read somewhere that he had a word with some promoters as well and said, come on, man, you got to get this guy back involved. Is that right? 
Yeah, I, yeah, I believe so. He never actually said that to me, like, or he was going to make calls for me. But you know, Stevie knew me. Stevie, you know, no one knew me better than Stevie, so he, I'm sure he spoke on my behalf. But I get it. You know, promoters are looking for a draw, and if I'm not um, a draw to them, or I'm not in line with their, with 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 what you know they feel it represents their brand then that's fine and and to be honest with you during that point uh wow I'll, I'll always remember i was at that point which you know kind of low point for me as an mc right to be honest with you um and i i made a i, I made a comment which turned out to be a fatal mistake that turned all of the jungle pretty much all of them against me and I was, I was honestly, all of them against me, right? And What comment? What did you say? All right. <laughs> so at this time, you had uh, Jungle Fever, one of the biggest rakes, right? Navigator Debt, 5-0, Ragga Twins, um, all the big skibber, all the big MCs, right? Heavily. Uh, they were a predominant um outfit doing some of the best race right and funky from elevation created a uh, jungle mania which was because that's the beauty of funky he would create offshoots to fit a certain scene right so funky created jungle mania and i was on stage one time and i said something like forget uh forget the fever this is the mania, right? And I said it, not thinking, well, I said you're throwing your hands up and I, I guess that's how I took it at that time. <laughs> I mean, really? That, I mean, there are, there are worse things you could say, right? I mean, fuck's sake, come on. <laughs> yeah, but let me tell you, mate, I woke up that night, that night, they all went, some of the MCs went to do a pirate show, I think on Cool FM, because they were all on Cool. And they were just burying me on radio. Fuck MCNC, who that blood clot this and that blood. And they would play serious ragga tunes like Boom Bye Bye and Abati Boy. Or, uh, I mean, you know, seriously just saying, fuck him, he's done. And that also added to that era of uncertainty and doubt and me not getting bookings, but let me make it very, very clear. All right. I have no problem with fearless and I think he's a dope MC and he's probably a dope human being, but there is no way I didn't get a booking because of fearless. <laughs> well, it was because no. it was because you said the mania thing and the fever thing. Yeah, it was more of that. It was more of the time and what was going on and everything else. So you know, um, and and it was, you know, it played on my mind a lot. You know, I started seeing my bookings in London go down, and and that's where I wanted to be. To be honest with you, was you know, I I, I wanted to be in the grime of it all because that's why I love. That's where I came from. You know. Um, I wanted to be in the grimy, grimy events, but you know, um, my success was also preventing me from doing that. Well, you did eventually come back, and uh, and you had several years again operating at the top. But you, as go back to that exit strategy of yours, did that harden your desire to make sure that 
you know, that, that sort of period of exile or the bitchiness and the competitiveness and, the, you know, the grim situation that you found yourself in at that point, when you did get back, did that moment there that you'd gone through sort of harden your resolve to set your own exit? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, absolutely. It kind of made me realize, well, what if this does go away? So, you know, I had my eye on an exit. I didn't know what that strategy was going to be. But I was always looking for it. How do I get out of this? How do I come out uh, of this where I don't feel bitter, I feel great about it, um, and um, just move on with my life, right? Because I was adamant I was not going to be one of the oldest people in the room trying to be the youngest up on stage. And, and you know, my hair started going gray. So there was a period I was like, oh, <laughs> shit, look at me here. So I dyed it blonde. I went for a blonde period. And I was like, I'm going to dye it blonde. So you can't see no gray. And you know what? For me on stage, that's great because you know who I am and where I am. And it looks good, right? So, you know, I was always looking for what I, I didn't know what it was going to be. Um, but I was always looking for it. And when it appeared to me what it would be, I recognized it. Uh, well, thank God you did, because it meant that you did have several years at the top. Well, we'll talk uh, next in the next episode about your exit strategy and what you've been doing since you enacted that exit strategy, living up in uh, sunny La La Land over in America <laughs> uh, in, a, in a range of interesting and weird and different jobs. Uh, we're also as well going to talk about uh, more about Happy Hardcore, because you were very, very good at emceeing both Happy Hardcore and Jungle. And I'm really keen to explore in the next episode your view on the split that happened, why it happened and what it meant uh, for the scene and for your career as well that's mcmc this is raw the night is raid podcast if you want to get in touch hello at the night is raid podcast.co.uk all social media channels we're live as well if you want to watch it on video we're on youtube uh, everything filmed from here on in get involved well, we hope you've enjoyed the latest episode of Raw. We've certainly enjoyed making it and bringing it to you. And we want to make more. Uh, but to do so, we are going to need some of your help, I'm afraid. Uh, we are just normal people with normal jobs. This is a hobby and not a very well-paid one at that. In fact, it's not paid at all. Uh, we've invested quite a bit of our money to keep this, uh, keep this show going. Uh, but we could really use some of your help. Uh, as well any donation big or small we know it's a difficult time for you all out there it's a difficult time for all of us uh, but any donation you can give whatever size will help us go towards improving our kit it will help us get on the road pay expenses to go and interview some of your 90s rave favorites uh, and also just uh, keep bringing you some more banging 90s rave content if you do feel able to help that'd be great if you don't we do understand uh, but if you can head over to gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcasts that address i'll repeat just one more time gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast uh, and if you can't give any money or you want to join our community why don't you head over to twitter why don't you head over to instagram why don't you head over to youtube and why don't you head over to facebook search raw the 90s rave podcast like us subscribe to us do all that get involved so now it's time for a big shout out to some of our most generous donators and helpers. Uh, a big shout out to Chad O'Carroll, who knew that the 90s rave scene was big in North Korea. Oi, oi to you, mate. Uh, a big shout as well to Wayne Clark, who uh, gave some money via our GoFundMe.com forward slash the 90s 
Rave Podcast URL. Uh, he knows how in, uh, difficult it is to keep funding all this kit, and he's given us a fantastic donation. Thank you very much, Wayne. Big ups to you and Malcolm Payne, ongoing funder from the US of A. We're glad you're enjoying it, mate. Keep listening. There's loads more to come where that came from. 